Welcome to TopCast. TopCast is the This Old Pinball podcast for all things related to pinball. Our emphasis is on interviewing pinball personalities, particularly those that work in the coin-operated game industry. To find TopCast on the Internet, just point your browser to pinrepair.com slash TopCast, and you will find all of our shows, which are available in podcast format for download. Our podcasts are also available through Apple's iTunes, if you're using an iPod-type MP3 device. Tonight on TopCast, we'll be talking with Pat Lawler of Williams, Bally, and Stern. So now, part two of our extended interview with Pat Lawler. Okay, so Whirlwind sold 7,300 units. Like you said, that was an excellent, an excellent run. So now your next game was was Funhouse. Funhouse? <laughs> where did the whole theme actually originate from? You know, I imagine it originated well before Rudy came about. I wanted to do a game with a big talking head. That, that was the original concept. The original concept I had was, I'm going to have this big head, it's going to be on the play field, it's going to be sitting there yakking away at you, and you're going to get the, you're going to get the whack back at it with the ball. Um, that was the concept. As we went along, I was trying to figure out, okay, what would be the theme that would encompass this whole, you know, this whole kind of bizarre concept of, you know, a talking head and whatever. Somewhere in the development of me drawing the game and working with it, I said, you know, there used to be this great amusement park that I grew up next to across the river here called Riverview, and it had this huge, uh, it had this huge fun house where you walked in through the mouth of Aladdin. It was called Aladdin's Castle. And the eyes on the, the eyes on Aladdin moved. They moved back and forth on the fun house. I said, why don't we just, you know, why don't we do Funhouse? Why don't we make this a whole amusement park game, a kind of warped amusement park game? Because at the time, uh, Barry Ausler, you know, was king of the amusement park games. He had done Comet, um, Cyclone, uh, and so I couldn't take the direct route of doing the amusement park rides and the roller coasters and all that stuff. That was sort of Barry's, uh, you know, point of reference and so i i uh, decided that what i was going to do was do this funhouse theme which was a whole sideshow theme and we uh we did more of the more of the wacky sideshow carnival funhouse thing um and it, it it turned out great now the naming of uh of rudy came about from your daughter if i remember correctly yep yep at the time we uh, we were trying to figure out what we could call our, our dummy. And I came home and I had some pictures and, uh, I showed them to Cassandra and, and I said, what should we call the, you know, what should we call the dummy? And I, you know, gosh knows where she got all this from. She just stared at it and went, Rudy. And I said, Rudy. And she said, Rudy. And I said, okay. <laughs> now, how was the talking head concept taken at Williams. I mean, this is another crazy Pat Lawler idea, I would imagine, is what they were saying. Oh, uh, yeah. No one was sure, once again, what we were cooking up. They they were, everybody was up in arms because, oh, my God, they're, they're, they're building a giant, you know, oh, well, they didn't know, they didn't, first of all, 
that they didn't know how big the head was going to be. Everybody assumed it was going to be some small little thing that would be, you know, on the play field. And, and it, it wouldn't, first of all, they all assumed it wouldn't be animated. You know, how could you hit a head that's, you know, moving and talking and doing things? You, you know, nobody even dreamed of such a thing. Well, luckily, the mechanical engineer that I had had spent time in the toy business. And uh, he's a genius. And uh, he sat there and he dreamed up a way where you'd have a mechanical mouth going up and down, and his eyes would move and you'd be able to do that, and his eyelids would move. And then, you know, I, we brought in John Yowsey, and John Yowsey happily did sketches for what a sideshow dummy should look like. And... Uh, and then everybody said, okay, this is really cool. How big is this thing going to be? And I went over to my play field, and I came over, and I brought out this big block of wood that was the size of it, and I said, it's going to be this big. And they all looked at me and said, you're kidding. And I said, no, it's got to be so big that it just blows you away when you're looking at it in the game. And they said, how are you going to fit it in there? And I said, that's my job. You let me worry about that. And so we went off, and everybody did their thing, and we had this, it was, you know, Rudy is way bigger than most people dreamed we'd do, and, and I know I've told this story before, this is one of the great stories from Williams, the very, you know, sort of first time we had the whole game together, with Rudy, with his face, with him talking, Neil Castro came upstairs on the floor, Neil Nicastro is the midway president at the time. And he walked in and he played the game and he turned to everybody in the room and basically, this is a paraphrase, he said, he, he said, uh, don't fuck this up. <laughs> he said this, he said this is so cool that I can't imagine that we're not going to sell a zillion of these. And he walked out. And, of course, we're all giving each other high fives. <laughs> uh, and then the, you know, but, but something I want to make very, very clear here. Something like Rudy takes everybody. It doesn't just take a game designer. It takes all of these talented people to make something like that come to life. Let me give you an example. It took John Crutch to figure out mechanically how to make Rudy. It took Larry DeMar hours, 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 hundreds of hours of him sitting there with his computer generating a scripting language that would allow Rudy's mouth to look like he was talking the words that you were, you were doing. Hundreds of hours of him programming Rudy's eyes to follow the ball, to look like they were following the ball, okay, and make that happen. It took the sound and music guys many, many, many attempts to get Rudy's speech to sound, you know, the, the way he does. The first attempts we did, he sounded cartoonish, and, and he didn't sound right, Um Lots of groups would have simply gone, that's good enough, he's cool enough, just put him out on the street. Um, there were 
there was one of the the music and sound guys who walked in one day and we said we're trying to make Rudy unhappy because it's getting to be midnight. Rudy needs to be unhappy, but he doesn't sound unhappy. What are we doing wrong? And he said, you know, when you when you talk to a child and you're angry at them, you don't raise your voice. What you do is lower your voice and you slow down. And so everybody went back down to the recording studio, and if you watch what Rudy says, he he drops down an octave and he becomes very sullen. Um, and the first time we put that in the game and we played it, Ed Boone was in the office. He was playing it, and Rudy went, I'm not happy with you now. And Ed Boone took his hands off the flippers, and he turned to everybody and went, he went, oh, <laughs> like that. Um, but it takes... It takes so many talented people to do that. And every one of those people is deserving of the praise that, you know, that all of these games, you know, got. It's not one person. It's not two people. It's literally 20 people that it takes to, to make this happen. You know, they're, they're all, Steve Ritchie says this best. He says, you know, there's one dad. There's one guy who makes sure that everyone keeps their eye on the ball. But, but you know, there's a team of people with their eye on the ball that, you know, that it takes to do that kind of stuff. And, uh, and Funhouse is a perfect example of that, of, 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 the, of the number of talented people it takes to pull that off. The, the thing that was, to me, really amazing was... Um... Uh, the snoring and the way his jaw kind of vibrates almost when he when he snores when you put him to sleep it's just to me it's unbelievable i this is a funny story i i don't know if i've ever told the story before but a couple of years after funhouse came out i received a call from a professor of languages in ohio somewhere and he wanted me to come teach a class on how you infer you know, language and constructs based on what you're doing with facial expressions and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and I told him, I'm, I'm uniquely unqualified to do what you're asking, but I really appreciate you calling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, the thing about Funhouse too is it's, um, it's, you know, we're running one, we're operating one right now at, at, at Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum. And, you know, it, it makes good money. I mean, we're running at 50 cent of play, and next to it is all the new Sterns. Um, you know, and I don't mean like dog Sterns. I mean, you know, Lord of the Rings, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, Simpsons, Family Guy, all the, you know, the good Sterns, and Funhouse basically keeps up with them. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it maybe doesn't make quite as much money. You know, they're at 75 cent, and, and Funhouse is at 50, but it's, it's still, damn, the thing's still earning. You know? Yeah, and and once again we we pushed the sales records for that year beyond you know where they had been. We broke you know we we almost hit twelve thousand. Any time in the coin operated game business that you break ten thousand, that's a big day. That's a really really big day. And when we hit that you know when we when we got to that number. You know, uh, Joe Dillon at the time was still alive. He was still the sales guy at Williams, and he came to me and Larry, and he said, 
he said, you know, a slightly different era, a slightly different time, and we might have hit fifteen or twenty thousand with this game. He said, we're, you know, we're we're still sort of in a run up here. He said, that's what you guys just did was spectacular. I thought we were pals. All right, now before we talk about Adam's family, we've got to talk about playfield coatings. You were kind of the pioneer in what became Williams Diamond Plate, and this started on on your games. I mean, specifically with there are diamond plated playfields that are in Bonsai Run. Right, right, Bonsai Run. Now, what what was I mean? How did you make this happen? Why would it take so long to actually? You know, it was early 90s before this actually became, you know, quote, production, a standard feature. Why did it take so long, and what was the whole process? Diamond Plate was uh, was initiated by one of the vendors, Sun Process. And the guy who was the sales guy for Sun Process at the time was a gentleman named Ron Baum. Ron would come in to the to the plant and he had this process and he was trying to get people interested in it and nobody wanted to bite partly because it cost an extra twenty dollars a play field um, and so we said we agreed Larry said you know okay Ron why don't you do some of the some of the sample play fields in bonds I run in diamond plate and we'll find out how good this stuff is you also have to understand that you don't just do things like that. You don't just one day have a salesman come in and go, oh, there's this new stuff I can put on your play field. Trust me, it'll be great. And then you put it into production the next week. And one of the reasons you don't do that is because what happens a year later when the play field hard coat starts delaminating from the play field and flaking off in giant chunks? You know, you, you can't afford to risk your company on untried processes. It, you just can't. So you have to be conservative and you have to say, all right, we're going to give this, a, you know, we'll, we'll start out with samples. We'll put them into the real world. We'll try and keep track as best we can of some of these samples. And we'll find out what happens with the process. And so we did that with Bonsai Run. We did more of them with Whirlwind, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so basically it got proved that there wasn't anything detrimental that was going to happen with the hard coat. It was proved that it truly gave the play fields more life. Uh, and at some point the company decided, okay, we'll, we'll go with it. Now you have to understand that along with all of that, there was a huge discussion internally about are we building play fields that'll never wear out? Because one of the reasons that an operator would replace a game eventually was because the play fields wore out. If you look at you know the Bally games from the from the 60s and 70s and some of the Gottlieb games and the older games, the playfields wear out on your games that are big. You know, get played a lot. They just they would just wear out. The paint would go away, 
And so you sold product because that happened. And there was a huge discussion in-house about are we cutting our own throat by doing this? And the people in engineering convinced the people in management that it was far better to sell product based on how good your product was than on just plain old wearing out your old product. You know, it was kind of the old Detroit, new Detroit thing. Um, and that's how it happened. We, we started out using it as samples, um, and, and we went along. Ron was so grateful that I was willing to try it. I have whirlwind play fields in my possession that he had specially stenciled, uh, specially uh, screen printed on the bottom that says, this play field was specially made for Pat Lawler and is protected by diamond plate. Looking back on it, though, I mean, when it became obvious that in the mid-90s, the biggest competitor to Williams games was early 90s games, do you think that diamond plate was a mistake? Mm, can't convince me of it. I, you know, it's just like when you, you buy a car now, you know. That's why I used the, the automotive analogy. If your company's not darn good enough to build a better product, you know, you should, you should build the best product you possibly can, you know, with, within reason and the amount of money that you're, you're putting into the product. You don't you don't sell cars you know anymore because the fenders are rusted out on them. You sell them because what you're selling is a more technologically advanced and better product. And you know I, I'm I'm just not a believer in you know purposely building bad things into products because you can. But when you've got games that basically everything else is made to last in a five year window. But you've got a play field that will last, you know, 10 or 20 years. Isn't mechanical parts of the pinball machines won't. And, you know, again, if, you know, if we're not good enough to build new entertainment that people are interested in seeing, then we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be doing it anymore. And, you know, we could, we, we could gladly talk about that in the current time frame. Right. Uh, but we're not there yet, so. Now, Adam's Family was the first game with a dot matrix display screen for you. And, I mean, did this, and, and also, you know, you, you've got the toys, you've got the cloud topper uh, with with the flashlights in it, and you've got, the, of course, the hand. Um, but, I mean, it doesn't have quite... It doesn't have quite the cool toys that, say, like Funhouse had, but on the other hand, it's got everything put together in one solid package. You know, tell me about your feeling with that and the toys in the hands and et cetera, et cetera. First of all, the cloud topper on the game was designed. We we had the movie script. We had gotten the movie script from the movie company early on, and. Um, the opening, one of the opening sequences of the movie that was later cut, there was a, there was a weather machine on top of their house. 
And at the beginning of the movie, what happened was they were sitting there generating weather off the top of their house, you know, to, to, to show how pow- sort of weird and powerful they were. That was eventually cut from the script. But I didn't know that at the time, so I put the cloud topper up there along with the, that's what that weird sort of round, uh, bald thing is that's up there on the decal. That's their weather machine, uh, which got cut from the movie. And most people, most people don't, you know, don't know nor care about that. It's also why there's lightning and thunder up there, huh. uh, going on. But it ended up staying because at the time we had finished all the work on it. It really didn't cost, you know, it was the, it was the price of a couple of flash lamps and the, and the topper. Um, Adam's family is a, is, 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 Obviously, we could talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, but but it's a it's a pretty much perfect example of average people being able to walk up to something and see something. Not pinheads, people who just were looking for something fun to do, walking up to a pinball machine and looking and and going, you know, when you play this game thing comes out and takes the ball away and you know everyone I I tell this story at the time we we were in touch with Paramount's like you know licensing group with their marketing people and when their marketing people had gotten the rights to do the movie they had gone out on the street with their clipboards and they were asking people things and and they would walk up to people and they would do this they would go da 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 snap, snap, and people would look at them. 85% of the people would look at them and go, Adam's family. And in the marketing world, if you can get past 20%, you know, 21% of recognition of your product out of the gate, that's considered to be a, you know, overwhelming thing. These people had 85 or 90% of the people they were walking up to going da-da-da-da, snap, snap, going, Adam's family. They didn't have to sell the movie as much as give people what they expected. And we made sure when we did the game that we gave them what they expected. They expected the hand. They expected Crazy Gomez. They expected a train being wrecked somewhere. Um, we gave it all to them. And they, they got what they expected. They, you know, I would stand in arcades and watch people go and grab their girlfriend, who obviously could care less about pinball, come, come over, and they'd stand there expectantly, waiting for the hand to come out and take the ball away. And, you know, that just, that just blew people in the pinball community away. They just, they, they looked at it and went, you know, what's with the stupid hand? You know, again, to us, it's a pinball machine. To everybody else who's looking at it, it was an experience they expected. We delivered on the experience, and they were more than happy to buy into it. Now, was there any toys? You know, you talked about the chart and the train wreck. I mean, you know, like a Cactus Canyon-type train or any other toys that you wanted in, in Adam's family that didn't, didn't come to, you know, reality for whatever reason? Actually, in the in the first pass of what I wanted to do when I read the script, I wanted to take the whole back box and I wanted to turn it into a dollhouse. I wanted you to walk up to the back box and I wanted you to look inside the rooms of their house and see the different things that were in there. 
Huh. And we sort of gave up on that early on because we couldn't figure out a way to pull it off cheaply enough. But I thought, wouldn't that be cool? You walk up to a pinball machine, and what are you doing? You're staring into the back glass to see the things in the rooms of their house. Yeah, maybe even like a diner type thing with the little guys on springs type thing. Right. Well, you know, you know, obviously Adam's family is the you know the game to beat all games as far as sales figures. I mean, you sold you know well over twenty thousand units, especially if you include the you know the nineteen ninety four collector's edition. Um, and 232. Yeah, there you go. You know, the thing that kills me about that game is it's, you know, like I'll have a pinball party and Adam's family will sit there and no pinheads will play it. But if you have, you know, like you were saying, regular people over, they just swoon over it. It's unbelievable. And, like, I, I recently bought a second Adam's family from a guy and I put it on location. And now location, I've got a, I've got a Spider-Man, I've got the Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, big stern games, new stern games. And I've got an Adams family right next to them. And the Adams family, goddammit, that thing made more money than the other games. I mean, it killed Spider-Man. I mean, it wasn't even close. And, you know, and I, I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's one of those timeless themes. People will travel to play that game, especially now because they can't find them. Yeah, we just, we... Larry and I received an award from Playmeter Magazine, and I know you're in the trade, so you know what Playmeter Magazine is. Um, we received an award for Adam's Family being the longest-running uh, game on their uh, top ten. Uh, we got that uh, this last fall. So the game had been in the top ten for 17 years. Yeah, it just, it, it, it's one of those games that just, you know, it won't stop earning. It's just, it's a testament that you, you, you did everything right. I mean, everything hit dead on nuts perfect. And, and it's just a theme that just won't go away. Even though there hasn't been an Adams Family movie in, in since what, they had that second one in the mid 90s. So it's kind of been out of the public's, you know, mind eye for a, a number of years. Yet people, they, they love that game. And yet, and yet, it's the game that single-handedly walked right up to the edge of the line of being not understandable in terms of gameplay, and the entire pinball industry followed it over the cliff right after that. You mean because it was uh, just the, the the software design of it became, like you said, a, a bit overwhelming. The template for all pinball machines afterwards. It's it's you have modes, and you sit there and you play the modes, and when you get done with the modes, you get to play a wizard mode. Okay, the 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 the, the great you know this. The great thing about coin-operated games is once everyone sees a hit, they will beat it to death until they, you know, are forced to do something different. In the 18 intervening years, no one has changed the software template for how you build a pinball machine. They are exactly the same today as they were in 1992. Well, we'll come back to that, but the, 
the one thing that's kind of interesting or an interesting question was, who was driving that train? Was that you or was that Larry? We all were. Everyone. The, the, you know, Larry had the, had, and, you know, first of all, John Norris had done a, had done a, uh, a game, uh, where he had a couple of very, very, very simple modes in it. Um, uh, and Larry had, you know, Larry, like all, like, like all of us, all of us had seen those, you know, we saw what everybody else was doing. And Larry said, well, what, what if you took some of these simple modes and really integrated them more into the gameplay? Um, and, you know, through his genius, he took and, you know, really worked them so they, they were part of the game. Now, you could also look back at Funhouse. Funhouse has a, has a mode in it. You know, get yourself a hot dog. Rudy sits there and starts to, to go, get yourself a hot dog, get yourself a hot dog. And, um, that, that's a mode. You know, there's clearly a mode there. Um, so we were, we were heading in that direction. And, you know, again, we got right up to the precipice of where you were supposed to go with Adam's family, and everybody drove over it like lemmings following that. Well, when you sell, you know, 20-plus thousand units, more of any pinball machine in the history of time and space, this has to wield you a fair amount of power, and with power becomes responsibility. How do you feel that you've handled it? Well, you get to the next game, which is Twilight Zone, and I've said this publicly over and over and over again. We drove off the cliff. We very carefully integrated a theme. We went out of our way to, to give them more and better and bigger and more powerful and cooler and all that other stuff and on location twilight zone never did that well it did okay it 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 was not understandable a normal person would walk up to twilight zone and go i have no idea what this game is doing right uh you know we 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 drove it over the cliff um you know and once again you know i i have to be very clear about this people who play pinball uh you know they know what's going on because it's their hobby, it's their specialty. You know, if if you go to somebody who knows about diamonds, their specialty is diamonds. They know what's going on, but nobody else does. Um, and so you end up playing to a smaller and smaller audience who who wants more and more and more of the weirdness that, you know, that only they understand. And it it that becomes a problem. That becomes a big problem. But, uh, but Adams, like I said, Adams delivered on what average sorts of people wanted to do. And, and, uh, for that I'm, you know, I'm grateful that, that everybody's hard work paid off. Well, the one thing that I noticed by the time you're hitting, uh, Twilight Zone and Adams Family and, and even Whirlwind, um, it, not so much Funhouse, Ponze Runner, or Shakers, though you, you, you're coming up with kind of a, I don't want to say a standard design, but you're coming up with this design of either three or six pop bumpers, 
either on the far left or far right side, and they're kind of like a loop. You know, they're to get to them, you kind of loop around, and then they exit down out back. Was this? I mean, were you designing playfields now, um, pre-theme or theme, and then play playfield, or playfield and then theme, or were you kind of getting? No, just like I'd always done. The the you begin to. You begin to say to yourself, I have some signature things that I put into what I do. Musicians do it. You know, all kinds of creative people do it. I was sitting there and I was saying, I've got some things that the people who play my games expect to see in my games. Uh, you know, the what I call the pat bottom, which is the five-lane bottom, um, which is, you know, which is, which is tricky to do correctly. There's geometry down there to doing that little bottom that's different than a Steve Ritchie bottom. Uh, you know, his slingshots are bigger. There's a slightly different angle to what goes on. And uh, the, the jet bumpers were, were sort of the same thing. I really, really, really like the shots. You know, the sh- when, we were, when I was doing the shots through the jet bumpers, where you could actually shoot the ball without touching the jet bumpers, and it would go ripping through there. You know, um, that takes a lot of work to sit there and lay that stuff out so that it works correctly. Uh, and I kind of considered that to be sort of my signature stuff. You know, if you, you could walk up to a pat game and you could see a pat game with the signature stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, did I do it too much? Probably. Um, was I sitting there and just mindlessly cranking out playfields? No. Uh, every one of those playfields took the same amount of hard work as every other one. Um, there, there's a lot that goes into when when you start out with a blank sheet of paper, even if it looks to normal people like you're just jamming things in the same place, you're not. And if you're off by a half an inch from where they used to be to where you're putting them in this game, well then the shot goes in a different place, and you struggle to make it all work. Um, it's it's far from being you know canned or whatever um you know in in some of the more modern stuff that i did in the last 10 years i purposely shook myself out of what i considered to be sort of uh the the signature stuff and said okay it's time to just give it up and do something different except for the bottom i love my five lane bottom i don't know why i just do and, you know, I can do interesting things with it. Other people try and copy it, and, you know, the, the, I smile because they don't get the geometry right. You know, there's a lot that goes into making that work. But I, I mean, no, I, I agree. And, and you've had some great success with, uh, you know, with, you know, like, I, I mean, for instance, that NASCAR doesn't have the, Shoot through the pop bumper thing, you know, and uh, and obviously uh, Family Guy really doesn't either. And and um, you know, I, I I like them. I I I think it's you know, I, I think it's good when you shake things up. Yeah, it's it's just you know you 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 know you decide today we're going to finally you know finally do something different, and that's fine. You know, I I I really like the challenge of doing. I'm the kind of person that likes the, you know, obviously what we talked about earlier in this interview, I like the challenge of doing things that makes other people uneasy. I like, 
I like telling people on No Good Gophers that there's going to be a ramp that comes down from space and launches a ball. You know that that that's upsetting to that was upset that again was upsetting to people. You know you're you're gonna you're gonna do what and the ball's gonna do what? You know, um, so you know doing that kind of stuff is great fun for me. Now, when they decided in '94 to do the Adams Family Collector's Edition, what was your what was your take on that, and, were, and how involved were you in that project? They knew they could sell more games. It was a business decision, and uh, they realized that they had undersold. They were getting calls from distributors saying, "Can we please buy more Adams Families?" And that was unheard of at that time. Williams didn't put anything back in production. Um. And so, you know, they were getting called, they were getting called, and finally they relented and said, all right, we're going to, you know, we're going to build some more games. And the day they announced the thousand games, they were sold. Every one of those thousand was gone. And the, the real truth was they could have sold more. But the guy who was in charge of sales for the company badly wanted, we, we were we were legitimately also getting called by our distributors and saying, you know, okay, I I'm really happy with my Adams family. What's another game I can sell? I need more, you know, I need more product to sell. And so they didn't have the wherewithal to really run three lines because they were running the Bally line, the Williams line, and you know. So they built a thousand games. They called it, you know, they called them Adam's Family Gold. We were instrumental in setting up the whole plaque thing and, you know, and the signed certificates. That was my doing. That was all my doing was the, the signed certificates and the plaque. You know, I, I went, to, I said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it and we're going to be really, you know, I'd seen the collector stuff that you could buy, you know, from Franklin Mint and stuff. And I said, we're going to, we're going to do it big time. We went out, we got real sandcast plaques. They, you know, we didn't, we didn't cut on the, on the things. We put the gold armor on them, the brass armor, um, and, uh, we did a few things different in the game. And, uh, and, and, you know, they had sold their thousand the day they announced them. They were happy. They, they, they bumped another thousand games out and we were happy because we sold another thousand and, and that's how it went. The Twilight Zone, when you got that theme, was that a theme that you were digging for? I came up with Twilight Zone, yeah. I, you know, again, it was another, it was another thing that I had really enjoyed as a kid watching on TV. And, uh, you know, I caught, I, and it, you know, we, uh, we already talked about soft licenses. And that was a soft license. It was, uh, you know, I can get the license, I can do all this ridiculously crazy stuff, design around it and use the license, uh, you know, Use the license, you know, as best we can, and and it worked out really well uh, for you know for the collectors of today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when did you know that you had gone too far with Twilight Zone? When we put it out on test. <laughs> was it too late to do anything? It was too late. We we had put the game out on test, and there was a that was on a Friday night. On a Saturday, I came. I hadn't been on test with it, but Larry and Ted Estes had been out with it on test. They came back in on Saturday morning. Um, they, they came back in on Saturday morning. I was already there. They walked up to me and said, "My God, we've done an awful thing." 
And I said, what do you mean? And they related this story about how they had a kid playing the game who had gotten the Powerball, and he couldn't get rid of it. He had no idea what to do with it. He had no idea how to get rid of it. And he, he threw his hands up in the air and screamed, I hate this game, and walked away. And that that's death. If you've got people who put their money in, throw their arms up and scream, I hate this game, and don't come back and play again, you may as well put a gun to your head and pull the trigger. Did a whole lot of work in the next couple of weeks to try and, you know, and try and make it easier for people to understand what we had done. Um, but we, you know, we realized we had gone over a cliff. How did you sell the clock? Again, one of those, kind of like the Earthshaker Institute, one of those things that doesn't really interact with the ball, but it was an expensive toy. How did you sell that to management? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> the, the clock was, was an entire management meeting. Everybody from management was there. They were demanding that we take the clock out and save money. We were telling them that we that we were using the clock as a way of showing people how long they had to do things. Um, that it fit the theme. We'd already paid. You, something most people don't know. Uh, Twilight Zone is the most expensive tooling budget ever done for a pinball machine at Williams. The, the plastic tooling, all of the tooling that went into all those toys that are in there broke every record they had ever spent to do anything. Uh, it was in excess of $200,000 <laughs> for all the tooling, for the gumball machine, for the, you know, for, 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 for the clock, for all of those plastic parts. Uh, we just, we just broke the budget big time. Now, that being said, we went to a show <laughs> and we sold 17,000 of them. So, you know. But, but in, in all fairness, some of those 17,000 were on closeout. Correct. That's a bad thing, right? And that was a bad thing. You have to understand those orders for that many games were taken at one show. That's unbelievable. People saw the game and just were amazed. They said, this thing's just incredible. And then it went out and, you know, it didn't earn as well as it should have. Right. Yeah, but, it, you know, from a collector's point of view, you're right. It's, I, you know, I don't know if you follow your, how much you follow your games, but, you, you know, Adam's Family and Twilight Zone have to be the two games that have the most goofy modifications and little toys that you can buy on eBay. <laughs> sure. You know, I, I mean, some of that stuff is just gaudy junk, but people love those games, and they, they want to dial them up even more than you dialed them up. Mm-hmm. You know, which is a great testament to, to you know, again, you struck, you struck the theme. You, you know, you hit them right where they wanted to get hit, you know. I mean, you, you did a good thing. You know, I, I mean, it doesn't sound like you feel that way now, but you did. Well, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I try and be, you know, I try and be one of my own best critics. 
Um, the way you get better at anything is not by having rose-colored glasses. It's by saying, what what did I do wrong that we could do better next time? Um, sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you take a chance and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't pay off. Now, does that mean you should stop taking chances? No. With that in mind, you saw what happened with Twilight Zone and the software being so complicated. Why didn't that become the pinnacle of complicated software, and then everything kind of slid back down, you know, to Adam's family or or, or lower? But it didn't. It, that wasn't really how it it panned out. Because the way the world works is people are constantly trying to outdo the last thing they saw. And so the last thing they saw was, you know, Adam's family and that, and now they've got to do something better. They've got to have three wizard modes, and they've got to have 16, you know, uh, uh, things that are happening over here, and you have to be able to play, you know, something here and something here simultaneously. And, you know, and, and again, for people who are locked into what it is we do, that's all fine and good. For people who don't have any clue what it is we we're we're you know we're all about it's death it means they're never going to touch the game well now you've got 1994 and now the industry is in a in a solid decline as far as game numbers i mean you went from you know over 20,000 atoms to over 15,000 of twilight and now you're in 1994 with uh, Red and Ted Roadshow. What is, and it's, I don't want to say it's a recycling of an idea, but it's, it is to a some degree. What was your thinking with, with the two heads versus, you know, the Funhouse one? Well, first of all, you have to start out with wide bodies. Yeah. Um, the, the whole reason that we talked management into doing the wide body thing was that there was historical precedent when you knew that you had a market that was starting to decline, which we all did. There was precedent for saying, all right, we'll change the packaging. Um, when you're, when you, when you need to change how you do with candy bars, you change the packaging. When, you know, the industry had done wide bodies before, they were, you know, they were somewhat declining and they decided they were going to try and show people this, you know, bigger, better, jump higher um, kind of thing. And so we decided that, you know, you could you could put a little more fun in a wide body and maybe we'd be able to try and sell the same big numbers. Um, and so... Uh, so I had always wanted to do a sequel to Funhouse, but I didn't want to use Rudy. Rudy needed to be retired. He was, he was far too big a hit to make a, a second appearance. And we always had these goofy ideas where we wanted to bring his relatives along. Uh, and so Red, Red is actually one of Rudy's relatives. There's a line in, in Roadshow where, uh, Either he or she says something about uh, his bro- her brother in a in a circus, and um, uh, and and of course Ted's the bulldozer guy, and he's he's a friend of Red's, and so I had this whole big thing I wanted to do, which was you know the whole travel the country with the construction thing, 
and uh, and so that's what we headed off to do. You know, it, I thought it would be really fun to have the two heads talking to each other. Are you sorry that you did that, or were you glad that you did that? No, no, because the, the, I, I'm I'm glad that I did it. I'm glad that um, uh, I'm if I if I could go back in time and fix one thing in Roadshow, it would be how the game locks balls. Um, the shot to lock balls on Roadshow violates a a tenet in pinball which says make it hard to get to locking make it hard to get to the point where you're locking balls, but then go ahead and let people lock the balls. In Roadshow the shot is so narrow and so thin to lock balls on the left side of the game that people get to locking balls and then can't do it. And um you know, say what you will about the music and everything else that goes with it, whether you like country, western. You know, once again, we were out on a limb trying something different. There's, you know, you, you and I can sit here and talk about different kinds of music and what we like and whatever. There's a whole giant section of the country that likes country music. And we just decided we were going to go for it. We were going to give it a shot. And, you know, it was okay. You know, we, we again, we sold some of them on closeout. We sold... We ended up moving, I think, 7,000 of them. Um, and uh, if I had a few things to fix, I would go back and fix them. Uh, but, uh, but again, the, the, the game, if you, you know, if you, if you sort of, if you sort of go along with the theme and put a big smile on your face, there's a lot there to smile at. Candy, 2000 security system online. The one game that really makes me smile is Safecracker. Um, I, I know that again, maybe is this your candy bar analogy with different packaging. Is that is that apply to this? No. Well, partly. Pinball was clearly in decline. Pinball was taking a huge hit everywhere. We were getting beat up left and right. We were getting screamed at by people. Our games weren't making money. Uh, you know, our, our, our European customers in particular, were being beat up by equipment that was uh, gray area gambling games. And in Europe, they were called trail games. And what does that mean? People would sort of recognize what those trail games were from the games they play in Las Vegas today, where you essentially play what amounts to a slot machine on the bottom of the game. And once you earn the right, there's a board game above it, and you get to move around on the board game, and the game would pay you off in these gray area tokens that people would then trade for real cash. And in Europe, those trail games hadn't been outlawed, and they were taking over the arcades and so we had our distributor had brought us uh, some of a couple of trail games and we had sat in engineering and played them 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 and we looked up and said you know why don't we give it a shot to turn a pinball machine into a uh, a combination pinball machine trail game maybe we'll regain our lost 
ground in Europe. And the other complaint was that our pinball machines took up too big a footprint um, in the locations they were in in comparison to both video games and these these trail games. And so I said, okay, I, I think it would be a really cool, fun challenge to design a slightly smaller footprint pinball machine and uh, and do all this other stuff. Well, as was pointed out, Many years later, by uh, by someone, they said, "You didn't just change one thing; you changed everything." And uh, and we did. And so, um, uh, we sent Safecracker to Europe. The Europeans really didn't want to deal with it because they didn't want to flaunt that they were running below the the, the radar of the law on their regular trail games. Um, they, you know, they, they sort of, there was a po- big political thing going on there. Uh, in this country, the operators, uh, didn't have a clue what they were gonna do with these tokens. Uh, we pointed out to them, you know, the deal is you're supposed to let them win a token and then give them a pizza or something, give them a free beer. And they were like, really? And we were like, yeah. And they were like, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> And so we had sort of created a gray area pinball machine that nobody knew what to do with. And that, that was, that's the reason that Assault on the Vault is in the game. Yeah. You could put it back in the game and get something different that someone else who hadn't earned it couldn't get. I think Assault on the Vault is so cool. I mean, get, you get the token and it's like an entirely different game. I, I think it's genius. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the whole, the whole token thing was, you know, it it was so. In Europe, they didn't really have a big problem with it. In this country, people didn't have any idea that the game gave you this token, and they'd stand there with it in their hand, and they they they'd stare at it. They'd go, "What does this do?" You know. Um, and the, there were a couple of operators. There's there were a couple of operators. There were some up in Minneapolis, St. Paul. There were some in the South that understood. They put a sign on the game. You know, get a magic token. You know, a bartender will give you a beer, or a bartender will give you a pizza, or, you know, whatever. And uh, they had games that made a lot of money. There were a few operators that got it. They understood what the game was, and they really sort of enjoyed operating them. But but by and large, you know, we created a game that uh, that sort of mystified people. They They weren't really sure what it was all about. But you only sold 1,100 units. That machine could have sold more, but something happened, didn't it, in, in, in this whole transition between here and Europe or something? Mm, that, that, yeah, there, there was some of that. One other thing that's, a, that's an interesting point that we'll probably bring up later in our discussion. Uh, Safecracker was going to be Monopoly. Uh, and... We had, Roger Sharp and I had gone to Hasbro and we had talked to Hasbro about making the board game on top of it be Monopoly. And, uh, we had set up a licensing deal. And our German customer came in and we said, what do you think about this being Monopoly? And he said, Monopoly is a stupid old game that only old people know. Nobody else cares. No, I won't buy them if it's heck has monopoly. 
And so we basically had gone to all the trouble to make the acquaintances, do the licensing. It was a big deal because Monopoly at that time wasn't just licensing themselves to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. And I was really disappointed because I really wanted it to be Monopoly. And uh, But we headed off and I turned it into Safecracker. And um, uh, so that that's some of the background story that went with that. The other part of what occurred there was uh, we had gone to all the trouble of building this new game, and the game went out and it, it earned okay. I mean, you know, it it, it didn't earn less than a, than a than a regular pinball machine, but it didn't earn enough more than a standard game, once again, like Bonsai Run, that you'd be inclined to run out and, you know, and buy them. And what happened at the same time was Brian Eddy came out with uh, Attack from Mars. And Attack from Mars, we, you know, pinball machines had been making, you know, $150, $175, $200. Um, Attack from Mars came out, and Attack from Mars was making $300, $325 a week. And people looked and said, wow, this is a regular pinball machine. There's no reason to continue this crazy experiment. And And they were right. You know, they were right for what happened. Um, and Brian did a fabulous job with Attack from Mars. It was just a great game. And, uh, you know, once again, Williams was its own competition. Yeah, because originally there was going to be like a whole line of these smaller games, right? Right. Correct. I like Safecracker, and, and I don't know, again, if you follow the collector's market, they bring good money today. I mean, they don't sell cheap. I managed to hang on to my four of them. Four of them? Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, what do you have a pinball collection? If you do, what do you have in it? I have one of everything I've ever built. Well, except for Safecracker, you've got four. Yeah, I've got I've got a bunch of those there in my pole building. And why do you have those? Because we had some parts games that were laying around when we were done testing. And rather than just sell them off for parts, I said, "Well, I'll give you a few hundred dollars each for them for you know, for what they what they you know what what I got them you know what I what what's in them." And so I've just kept them out in my pole building ever since. So now, after Safecracker, and now and you obviously took note of what Brian Eddy did with Attack from Mars. Um, how did No Good Gophers come about? Well, that's another interesting story. No Good Gophers, I originally wanted to be a sort of, sort of backyard, backyard mayhem game. Uh, I wanted it to be this, uh, thing where there, there were gophers. It, I, it didn't start out to be a golf game, in my mind. And, uh, I had this thing where I, you know, I wanted, the, the the spinning wheel in the game was going to be a weed whacker, and the gophers were going to be tearing up your lawn, and you were going to be like playing croquet and try and kill them, and you know it was there there was all this mayhem going on. The head of sales came and said, you know, people in in Japan don't have backyards; they don't know what they are. So how am I going to sell this game to people in Japan? And I said, well, we only sell a half a container of games to Japan anyway. 
you know, whatever. But he said, why don't you make it golf and then I can sell it, you know, everywhere. And I said, oh, okay, I'll make it golf. Uh, and so it's one of the only times I've ever been, when I, when I was sort of set on something or some original theme that I got sidetracked onto by somebody else telling me that they were going to sell more games by, you know, by turning it into golf. And, uh, and I, I, you know, that there's no good golfers is uh, once again a game that we came out with. It was like, oh, it's, you know, the people who were playing pinball at the time went, oh, golf, golf sucks. I don't like golf. Um, and then some years later in the last few years, people walk up to me and go, you know, I get it. It's one of the funniest most fun games I play. And so, you know, it, it's, I think sometimes when I build things, it takes a while, you know, for it to kind of, uh, kind of catch on. Were there anything that you did in Gophers that you're sorry you did or didn't do? You know, as far, you know, like you said, like the slam ramp, you said a lot of people didn't really get that. I think that's kind of actually, I think that, that mini play field, the clear mini play field with the hole in one, and the slam ramp. I think it's a really cool shot myself. Internally that, you know, were, you know, that didn't, you know, didn't want to buy into the whole idea of lofting balls like that in the air. Um, I think Gophers, if I had to rate all of my games, Gophers clearly is the fastest game that, you know, it's the most what people lovingly refer to as flow, you know. It's the most lightning game in your hands you can play that I've ever built. If you get the ball flying on that game, I mean, it's moving. Now, this was also your hookup with Lewis, Lewis Kosar. I mean, he became your kind of standard programmer. What? How did that come about? Uh, Lewis had been Lewis had been hired by Larry and Ted Estes, and uh, he was a programmer there, and. Uh, I had gotten done doing Safecracker with a gentleman named Matt Coriel, and Matt decided that he wanted to leave the company. He he went to work in another uh, part of the programming world, and I didn't have a programmer. Uh, and so Lewis, you know, said, uh, you know, why don't you know we we could you know we could do this. I went to him and we talked. And I ended up, uh, we ended up doing No Good Gophers together. And, uh, Lewis is a, you know, the, the thing I, I love to death about Lewis is that he has a really, he has a really off-center sense of humor that he can, you know, he can turn loose. And so it sort of, you know, it fits really well with the kind of stuff that I like to do in games. You there! Stop! Alright, you're coming with me. This completes part two of our extended interview with Pat Lawler, the pinball game designer for Williams, Valley, and Stern. Please join us for our upcoming TopCast episode, where we will continue this interview. 
TopCast is a podcast covering pinball and the coin-operated amusement industry. It's available free of charge on iTunes and additionally available for download at pinrepair.com slash TopCast. TopCast is produced by Clay Harrell. Production assistance by The Corn and Al Warner. This is Lawrence Brown reminding you that TopCast is copyrighted 2010 by pinrepair.com. Thank <laughs> you.